If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. They're wonderful things to have. Devices are good as well. I have many of them. But your children will not fight over your Bible app. Uh, my grandmother's notes. Treasures. Uh, so yeah, Bible's good. Have one. John, we're going to be in First John. If you don't have one, let me know, and I'll be glad to get you one. First uh, John 3. Um, I have been, for the past several months, thinking a lot about and trying to figure out I've not been sleeping well, and, and part of that's just a function of age, right? Like, you get a little bit older, and you just don't, your quality of sleep, you know? There's a reason they say sleep like a baby, not like a 47-year-old, right? Uh, it just, you know, it's just part of getting older, you don't sleep as well. Uh, but it would seem to be more than that, so I, probably last year, maybe, maybe longer than that, been really kind of thinking about why it is that I've been having trouble sleeping, and, and uh, someone described it to me this way, uh, that I, go, I have no problem falling asleep, but I wake up in the middle of the night, and it's like the hamster jumped on the wheel, <laughs> And just started going. Uh, and sometimes it's like about big stuff, right? Um, big decisions. But a lot of times it's not. It's just the chaos, the leftover chaos of the day in my head still, right? Like, what were the lyrics to that song, right? When does the new Taylor Swift album come out? Not that I care, but I just like, I heard him talking about it. It was Friday, by the way. Hey, uh, what we, like it's, I got to tell Wendy that thing. I can't remember to, to do that tomorrow. And the hamster jumps on the wheel and it just starts running. I, I think it's a function though. Uh, it's been getting better. I think it's a function though of maybe the anxious age that we live in. Yeah. That it just kind of builds up inside of us. Um, what you're looking for, what I'm looking for is kind of a way from, to calm my mind down, uh, to stop running from one thing to the next. I'm sure part of it's part of the age of distraction that we live in, right? Your brain is just used to, I mean, used to you just watch TV and it was just there. Now, like, there's a TV, there's a thing on the side, there's a thing across the bottom, and I have a device in my hand. I caught myself one time with an iPad open, a phone in my hand, and like four things on the TV. I was like, what am I doing? Is there any wonder that I can't sleep? <laughs> I'm probably getting a suntan from all of this, this, all these screens. And so I've been thinking about this, like how do you have peace of mind? Because peace of mind, and that's what you want, right? Like in the chaos to still be able, because it feels like the chaos of life that, that, that gets stealing peace of mind from you, which I don't love at all, right? That means that the chaos of the day and other people and other events, they have control over whether or not I can be calm. There's an image that I go back to often in my mind. There's this guy, I had a friend in high school, um, and uh, her and I were hanging out, and, and I, was, I went over to her house. We were going to go somewhere. I don't even remember where we were going to go. It was overshadowed by what happened while I was there. I was sitting downstairs waiting for her with her dad. And they had one of those houses where the living room was open. The second floor had like a, a hall, not a hall, but like an open area where like the rooms, but you could, you could see people walking upstairs, you know, just like right there. And her and her mother were in some sort of fight. Uh, and her mother was from Costa Rica, so she is yelling in Spanish. Uh, my friend was answering in English. It was just loud and chaotic. And I look over at her dad, and he's reading the newspaper like nothing is going on at all. Just calm as can be. And all of a sudden, he just kind of lowers the paper and asks me a, a very calm question. I'm like, how, how are you so calm right now? Right? I want to be one of those people that no matter what the chaos is around me, I think he was just used to that insanity. But, but there are people that have this center about them 
that whenever, whenever things go, goes wrong, when things are chaotic, they somehow are still able to be peaceful. The world doesn't rob them of their peace of mind. The hamster is not always on the wheel. So there's this guy. Uh, how, how do you deal with this? How do you, I think a lot of it has to do with the people, right, in the world and the, the life that we live and, and how, how it moves um, and how we interact with each other. Just yesterday, I was at Costco. I know, on a Saturday, who would do that? But I needed a thing. And so I'm leaving the store, and there's this couple, like, it's like a, it's like, man, it's like chaos, right? It's like motocross trying to get out of there. And uh, uh, I just had this one little thing, and I was trying to get out, and this, these people behind me are like, push, like, excuse us, excuse us, excuse us. Like, we weren't all trying to get out the door, right? And I just turned around and looked at this poor elderly couple and went, you can wait. This was very rude. I want to be clear, they were being rude. But my response was like, just very rude back. I was like, you can wait like the rest of us. It's fine. And I thought about that. I was like, man, why did I, like, why did I react that way? Why was I so flip? I was having a rough emotional day anyway, right? Like, uh, and so I just I kind of took it out on them. I, I didn't scream, but I wasn't nice. And just the, the chaos just had stripped me down to this place where I was my real self, which is dismissive and flippant. And I was angry. It was this uh, fourth century uh, Roman philosopher named Seneca. Uh, pretty famous dude. He wrote a book called On Tranquility. And in On Tranquility, he says that the hatred of human, the human race seizes us from time to time because of the corruption and the foolishness that we see on every hand. It can be difficult. It can be, you know what? It can be easy to become frustrated with people. You know why? People don't act right. Just this week, in my son's seventh grade middle school basketball game, we're sitting there during the game, and my wife turns to me and violently whispers. You know what I mean? It was very quiet, but very angry, uh, very direct. It was somehow loud and incredibly quiet at the same time. She whispers at me violently. I need you to stop talking. These people know us. Be quiet. And what she was saying was, you're not acting right. And what she didn't understand was, I did not care. Uh, Because these people weren't acting right. Like, I I, I did not care at all. Uh, People don't act Right, so it's easy to become frustrated with them. And so how do we live in this world full of this chaos, full of these people that, that, that don't act right? Well, Seneca has a thing, and in his book, he said this. He says, instead of hatred, right? That's one thing that you can do, you could hate. He says, instead of hatred or despair, he says, instead, what you should choose uh, is to laugh, to scoff at them. He said, it's a better strategy to be cynical. He says this, therefore, all things must be derided and born with a calm mind. It's more manlike to scoff at life than bewail it. His philosophy was instead of being angry, instead of hating, be dismissive. That's how I was with the people at Costco. 
right? Just dismissive. I wasn't angry. I didn't hate them, but I certainly didn't want to deal with them. I was dismissive. I, I get that stoic impulse of being detached. What you end up with, though, is like, look at those idiots over there, right? It's either you hate them or you're dismissive of them. You scoff, you laugh. Ha, they don't get it. They're beneath me. You know what? I'm just going to go through life. There are people over there and they're us. I can only control me. So I'm just going to deal with me and my internal feelings. And the way to deal with life and people is to scoff and be dismissive. I get it. That is probably my natural instinct. Not only is it my natural instinct, it's probably something that I've cultivated, to be honest with you. Not, not, I'm not bragging. That's embarrassing. Here's the problem. I, I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to live in a world where it's, look at us over here, we get it, and those idiots over there. I, I don't want to live in a place where the gulf between me and other people is so broad that it can never be overcome. Because what happens is when you begin with this us versus me versus us versus them mentality is that it slowly gets pared down, right? Because eventually part of us is going to disagree with us, right? And then it gets a smaller us, and then it gets a smaller us, and then 15 years from now, I'm a crazy old man screaming at kids to get off my lawn because it's just me now, and everybody else is an idiot. I don't want to live in that world where it is us versus them. I don't want to live in a world where I just don't like that idea of the world because what you end up with is you end up with what we have right now, right? Whether it's angry at that person for their news channel or their position on masks or their position on this or their position on that. And, and, and it's just, we can either hate them or we can be dismissive of them. And that feels like the world we live in right now. John suggests a different way. I know you're all surprised. Uh, 1 John 3. John is writing to these people that he loves this letter. And we've gone over a lot of it so far. But I'm going to jump into verse 16. This is the way that John suggests we deal with one another. Uh, By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, but closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? All right, let's stop right there for a second. All right, this is a side note. This is not one of my points. This doesn't count. Stop your timers. Uh, this is just an extra thing. I, I just can't, I can't get past this. So this is kind of a new idea in the world, by the way, what he's suggesting right here. Um, not exactly brand new, but like the way that it takes over the world is new. I think 2022 America, you say, should you care for the poor? It doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. Yeah. Now we're going to fist fight about how we care for the poor, right? That's fine. But we all would say, yeah, you care for the poor. That's a new idea, right? I mean, there was a time in the world where like, why would you care for the poor? Like if you believe in the gods or fates, well, that's on them, right? That's nothing to do with me. Why would I care for the poor? Uh, We don't see that. It was, it, was a, it was a kind of a new idea. Coming out of Judaism, yes, where you cared for those, but the idea that you would care for the poor is a new thing. We actually have documents of uh, secular documents <laughs> of rulers in, in the time, right after, right after uh, Christ's time in, in Rome. Uh, we have letters where they are complaining about how Christianity is gaining traction because they not only care for their poor, but for ours. There's hope for the poor. 
in the Christian faith. Isn't that beautiful? All right, back to the sermon. That didn't count. That was an extra. Where was I? Oh, yeah, we're reading text. Uh, but if anyone has good good, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask We receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is a different way. This is not hate. This is not deta- Seneca's de- detachment. Uh, this is not detaching. This is actually pouring in. It's a whole new way to be in the world. Uh, to actually pour yourself out for other people. Uh, instead of hate and scorn, he says we deal with love. But we have to ask what love even is then, right? It's an important question. Uh, because love is, I mean... We actually have brain science now, studies that, that show uh, kids that don't receive enough con- physical contact at certain stages of brain development that impacts their life long term. Isn't that amazing? Whether or not you were loved can affect your whole life. But we have different definitions and different people have meant different things. I don't know if you've ever read, read any older literature, but their ideas of marriage are different than our ideas of marriage now. They seem almost like marriages of like necessity or marriages of convenience or marriages of it's not how we think of love that kind of romantic love it's important though because that we understand what we mean by love because it has such an impact on our lives and uh, a lot of the world maybe maybe even most of it that knows about Christianity, one of the things that they'll know about Christianity is that we're commanded to love. So it's important that we know what we mean. John thought it was important enough to explain uh, what he meant when he said this. So he says, by this we know love. Here's how you know what love is. By looking at the example of Jesus, that he laid down his life for us, and then we ought to lay down our lives for others. It's by observing Jesus that we learn what love is. And this type of love is very, very different. We think about love a whole lot. I actually found this week, uh, believe it or not, I don't want to tell you what I was Googling that I found this, uh, but uh, uh, there's an entire Taylor Swift wedding Spotify list, like all the Taylor Swift songs about love. It didn't even include this new album. I have no idea. Like, it, like a whole playlist. We talk about love all of the time. Phil Collins, man, sometimes, you know, we talk about love all of the time. We sing about it, we think about it, we talk about it. So what, what even is it? Is it, is it? When we talk about loving others, is it, is, it an, is it a feeling that we have directed at them? Right, so feelings, uh, even when we talk about romantic love, uh, are part of it, right? Hopefully, right? There's that excitement, right? If, you know, <laughs> that wears off, right? <laughs> uh, but, but there's that excitement. There is... There is 
apprehension, there's fear, there's great joy, there is worry about being wounded. There's all of these feelings. And, and, and that's not wrong. I'm not suggesting that those things are wrong. It's part of love is, is, is a, a, a feeling towards someone. It's just that, it's just that things that stop at feeling or a love that stops at feeling falls short of the biblical notion of love. Most of the songs that we hear about love, one of my favorites, Paul McCartney and Wings, anyway, uh, is that they're all inward focused. It's about me and how I feel, right? The biblical notion of love is outward focused. And so John is defining what he means by this world transforming way of living is by living outside, not by focusing on what the inside. And here's the deal. I think this is terrifying to think about the world this way or living this way in the world, but I think it's also far better than we could ever dream of, of living, loving this way, following the example of Christ. Because here's the deal. Jesus didn't just love us when he died on the cross. When he left heaven in all of its riches and glory and praise and came to earth, he did that because he loved us. In the morning, sometimes they would go looking for Jesus and they couldn't find him because he was praying for you and me. It was his whole life that he loved us. And so that is the model that we have of pouring out our life, of saying no to a life that we could have to see others live. It's terrifying to think about, but also I think it's far better than than you could ever imagine. One, you get to be a part of making the world this way every day. If you live like this, if you, Christians, if you live like this, if you love like Christ loved, if you pour your life out for others, you get to be a part of making of bringing about the kingdom of God, God bringing about the kingdom of God through you every single day in your relationships and in your own heart. Uh, also, the second thing is, is that it will transform you. I, we live uh, with this mentality of scarcity and we're afraid to pour out because we'll never be happy if we don't have these things. And John says that the way that you're really supposed to live is if you have it and you can give it, you should. Whether it's time. Some people just need your time. Some people need a shoulder to cry on. Some people need somebody to celebrate with. It could be money. If you have it and they need it, your brother needs it, then he says you should, you should, you should live that way. And it transforms you. Slowly over time, our hearts begin to be changed. It's one of the ways that God shapes us and molds us. It's how he's transforming the world, and it's one of the ways that he's transforming us. The other thing is, this isn't something that you have to just buckle down and do. When I read this and I think this, and even as I'm writing these sermons and these talks, as I write about them, I even find myself going, I got to do better, (laughs) right? I am, I'm, I, I, this is not something you, you have to do to earn salvation. I need to be really clear about that. It's something that God forms in you as you grow in your walk, as you realize who you are. It's something you have to practice. Don't wait till you feel like doing it. But as we engage in loving others and pouring our life out for others, we actually transform. He changes us. Can you imagine a world? Can you imagine a world like this? Can you imagine being a part of that? Can you imagine transforming your relationships, the people that you encounter on a daily basis this way? Can you imagine how 
instead of throwing a fit about terrible middle school basketball coaching, instead what rose up in your heart was love and not bitter dismissiveness, not detachment, but a pouring out. Can you imagine what that would do to your blood pressure? (laughs) Can you imagine what it would do to your sleep? Can you imagine what it would do to the world? If we could love like Christ loved, if we could live out the love that we've experienced, it's transformative. It's intimidating because it seems like such a high bar to live up to. But the reality is it is a gift to us and it changes us. It will change the world. Power of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just that we have to feel this way. Love has to be shown. It has to be demonstrated. He says, don't just do that. I think he says, don't uh, love in word. Uh, I think he's saying only in word. And it's not that it's bad to love in word or talk, but it must also be done in deed and in truth. Uh, Have you noticed that uh, words carry weight? Uh, The longer that you're in a relationship, the deeper you're in a relationship, the more weight words carry. I have seen someone say I love you to their, to their wife and the wife returned an obscene gesture. I don't know what was going on behind those words, but they understood. My wife, when she says those words, I love you, you can't hear what I hear. You don't know the weight behind those words. You don't know all of the laughter. You don't know the hurts, the forgiveness, all of the food. There's been an insane amount of food. All of the tears. There's so much weight behind those three syllables when she says them to me. And it's not just the time. It's not just the number of years It is all of the deeds, the action, all of the things behind it, all of the days when she loved me when I was unlovable. It's not just the words or the feeling, it's the doing that matters. Then the words will begin to carry even more weight. It's the actions that give these words so much weight. Love has to be lived out. It costs us something. We have to get up and move. Love also has to be connected to a need. This guy, um, uh, Jay Denny, uh, he's a 19th century author. I think he might have been a pastor too. Uh, he said that we have to connect. Love has to be kept, for it to have impact, has to be connected to the need. Here's what he said. This is the illustration he gave. I love it. He said, uh, if I'm sitting on a pier and enjoying the sunny day and the, the breeze and the sound of the waves and it's amazing and I'm having a great day and somebody that I don't know runs past me and says, I love you so much and jumps into a river and drowns, that, that doesn't mean anything to me. It's disconnected from a need that I have. He said, however, if I fall in the river, and someone jumps in to save me, and at the cost of their life saves me, well, there's great love, 
because it met me in my need. I think that sometimes I don't realize the greatness of God's love because I don't recognize the greatness of my need. That one day I'm gonna stand before an almighty God and not even be asked to live, to, uh, live up to my own standards for, my, for other people. That would be bad enough. But to ask to live up to the standards of God. That is the depth of my need. And that is how Christ met us. He putting himself in our place. Our love must do the same. It needs to meet a need. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for someone in need is to give them a couple hundred bucks to make it to the end of the month. That can be a thing that you can do to love them. I also know situations where giving somebody a couple hundred dollars is the worst thing that you could do for them. What's the difference? How do I know the difference? The only way that I know is to know them. To find out the need and to sacrifice, to pour out your life, to meet a need with a thing that I have. This is what they're talking about. How can you say that you have the love of God in you, John says. Don't, if you look at someone in need and you have the thing and you harden your heart against them. It is this opportunity that we get to be this change agent in the world because we have encountered this change. We connect the need and the love. And then that could be so many different things. And then John goes straight to one of the biggest blocks, right? Like he says, like, this is how love is supposed to be. Then he goes to one of the, the greatest blocks in our heart, the things that we have, right? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart, man, he just goes straight at it, doesn't he? Because I think that there's, we have these so many things that we think that we can't be happy without. How can we possibly give these things up? Um, and John goes right at that and says, no, like if somebody needs it, why wouldn't you give it to them? Whatever it is. Expression of love starts near with the brothers and then spills over into the rest of the world, even according to Jesus to our enemies. This is how those gaps between people that we disagree with are bridged. And then John says this in verse 19. Uh, By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Here is your peace of mind. Here is your assurance before God. Is what he says. which is so great that he does this because at this point in the reading and in the sermon, I'm not feeling super assured because my heart condemns me. My heart looks at this text and points at this text and then points it to the menu that I have planned for this week of all the delicious food that I plan on eating and says, you don't really love anybody else that way. You kind of love yourself a whole lot, Chris. And he says, how, he goes straight from this, this, this thing about how much I don't love and, and knowing that I don't live up to this standard. And, 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 and I, even, if I tr- even when I try my best, I, I just always feel like I fall short. And he says, you know what you need in this world to have peace of mind. Thing, if you could strip everything down, all of the things that you're doing, if you could strip them all down and just live out of this place of love, it would be an amazing place. And then I say, yes, what if I could strip my, my life down and I could live out of this place and I'll stop worrying about all of the things things that I worry about and I only worried about was I loving God and was I loving my neighbor and I stripped everything down to those two, those two things then guess what I'm still going to feel condemned and John knows it 
And so he says, here's how you have assurance before God. Your heart before God. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. This is what he says. First of all, what he's talking about, I think, is prayer. No, I take that back. I'm certain what he's talking about is prayer. He's talking about going before him. He mentioned it a couple times. Is when you go before God, when you go before God. That's kind of a new idea, by the way. Like if you, if you read the Old Testament, we just finished kind of studying, through, walking through Exodus. And, and in Exodus, it's this amazing story. It's at the very beginning of your Bible. And God has created his people in, they're a great nation, but they're in slavery in Egypt. They're not in the promised land where they're supposed to be. And so God rescues them out of Egypt in this miraculous way. And he takes them to this place called Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, all the people are gathered around the mountain. And God descends on the mountain. And it's like, just like, huge thunderstorm and, and flames and a fire and it's very terrifying. God says like, you guys come up the mountain and the people are like, no, hard pass, Moses, you go up and tell us what he has to say. We don't want to do this. Which I get, right? I wouldn't want to go into the fiery mountain either, no. So they, go, they send Moses up. Moses goes up in the mountain and God gives him like blueprints, right? He gives him these blueprints for like a house that God's going to live in among the people and how they're going to live. Not just that, but all these detailed instructions about what they're going to wear, I mean, the people of God, he, he arranges them how they're going to be, that God's going to come and live in, in the middle of them in this, this tabernacle, and, and eventually the, the temple of the same pattern, this little eh, portable Eden place, the place where God's going to be and humans can meet with him, right? And so they're going to arrange themselves. And, and just to be arranged around him, he gives them all these laws, all these rules. It's not just like don't murder, that's there too, but it's also like, hey, you're going to dress differently. You're going to eat differently every single day so you remember who I am and who you are. And then to get into where God lives in the Holy of Holies in the, in the very back uh, of this tabernacle, this, this, this portable tent, uh, in the very, very back there's all where he's going to be, there's all these instructions about the furniture that's going to go in there and, and the clothes that you're going to wear and who can come in and who can't. And there's just, just one line of family who can go in and deal with this stuff. And one of them only one time of year can go into the presence of God. It's unbelievable, all these details. And then God, at the end, it's smoke, fire comes and he just kind of descends over and, 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 and just dwells over this tabernacle. And, and the weirdest thing is says at the very end of Exodus, it says that Moses couldn't go in. What? Moses who talked to the burning bush couldn't go in? Nope. Moses who went up on the, ta- he was in the fire? He couldn't go in? Nope. Moses, the one who said, God, can I see you? And God said, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna put you in a cleft of a rock, I'm gonna pass, and you can see where I just was. How about that? That Moses now can no longer go in. Unbelievable. This access to God, and, and, and the ones that can go into it, uh, they have to wear certain clothes, there's these rituals, it's unbelievable what they have to go through. Once a year they go in there, and they bring the blood of this animal, and they sling it against the, this altar, it's unbelievable the detail that God gives them about how they're going to live together. All of this to stand before God. And then Jesus comes along, and a lady that he's not even supposed to be talking to, according to rules, asks him about worship. And Jesus says, there's a time coming and it's here now when it's not in the temple or anywhere else that you'll worship, but you'll worship in spirit and truth. You'll come before God because the spirit of God will be inside of you. That's the kind of access that the followers, by followers of Jesus, by faith in Jesus, the spirit placed inside us, that's the kind of access we have to God, to come before him. How am I going to be reassured in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And he says, here's how you know that you're part of the truth. 
Here's how you know, because you're doing these things, you're following the command, because you love God, because you're living these things out, because Jesus has done all of these things in your place, because you know the truth, you know that you can stand assured before God. And you come into his presence and you pray and you ask, and here's what often happens. We begin to pray, and here's the deal. I think that, look, popcorn prayer, you know what I'm talking about? You know, like, somebody's like, hey, will you pray for me? You're like, yep, Jesus helped them. Like, that kind of prayer? Or like, hey, you pass somebody, like, pray for them, Jesus helped them out, right? I'm not against that, it's fine. Uh, it can't be the only kind of prayer, I don't think. I don't think it's helpful to be the only kind of prayer. You can kind of grow out of a different thing. But, but the kind of prayer that we're talking about here, the coming before God kind of prayer, the Moses in the tabernacle on the mountain kind of prayer, it's always responding to a thing that God's already said. Does that make sense? Like prayer is responding to a thing that God has said to us. He's told us who we are, what he has done, what he's like, what's expected. He's told us all of these things. And so we come into prayer to ask him for these things. And instead we get to lay our entire life before him. And we, the, the reality is that that's going to take a minute. It's going to take time for us to do that. But what we do, what we get is we go into prayer and we begin to ask God for things. And here's what, here's what I think happens so much of the time. I, I know it happens in my life all, uh, almost all the time. I go in to ask God for a thing and, and I, leave, I leave different. Here's what I mean. I go in because I'm hurt and I'm wounded and, and, and I am, am, am at wit's end and I cannot sleep and I'm, I'm broken down and I begin to pray, God, these people, they've said these things and they've done these things and they've hurt me. I want you to smite them. I mean, look, there's a whole bunch of stories about you smiting people. I really feel like here's all the evidence that you need to smite these people who have upset me deeply. This is what I want. I want smiting. I want Old Testament smiting. And God says basically this. I hear you. I hear you. Hey, why did they upset you so badly? And I begin to kind of like work through that in his presence. Well, because of this and this and this and this. Why does that bother you? Well, because of this and this and this. And slowly through prayer, slowly by spending time in God's presence, by working out all of the things in his presence, I... So often, in this very specific case uh, that's happened repeatedly, where he always ends up taking me is, what is it that you need, Chris? Is it that you need them to tell you that you were right? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, so you need them to declare you righteous. And then I find myself, instead of praying for these people being smited, asking forgiveness for turning over the job of declaring me righteous to them instead of Jesus. And now my heart's broken. Now I'm all messed up inside because Christ has declared me righteous. Why do I need them to declare me right? And then he often says this, instead of smiting them, how about this? How about you go and love them? What? I came in here asking you do a thing and you want me to leave doing a thing? How about just the smiting? No, go do the loving. Or you say to God, hey, there's this person, I'm praying for them. God, would you speak, would you speak into their life? They need Jesus. Will you please do that? And God says, yep, absolutely, I'll do that. How about you go do that? What? 
Yeah, how about you sacrifice some time to spend time with this person that needs to hear about Jesus? How about you just appear to them in a dream? I'm busy. How about you set aside some of the things that you wanted to do to go love this person well? And that way, they'll hear about me and your heart will be transformed in the process. We come before God and we bring him all of these things and the Holy Spirit begins to do these things in our heart and when you land on the place that the thing that I now need to go and do is to believe in the Son and love others, you know the Spirit's worked in your heart and you can stand before God assured that you know Jesus. Because that's what he does. He guides us and and moves us and changes our heart. We ask him to change these things and I want him to fix all of these problems in the world. And I find so often what he does is he strips me down to nothing and then begins to try to put me back together. What a beautiful thing. What a way to be in the world. What a way to live. What a God to serve that doesn't break us down to, to to see us just broken into pieces, but tears us down so that he can put us back together loving better, loving more, with hearts that are bigger, capable of more love, transforming relationship kind of love. That's how we know that we can be assured that God is working in our hearts to teach us to love our brothers but your heart will condemn you. You ever started in prayer and been like, I just don't even know how to do this, I'm out. <laughs> like, like, you know what, I, I don't even know where to begin. How, I can't pray today, I've been a terrible human being. I've not been loving my brother well at all. Uh, I'm greedy, I, you know what, I'm out. It's not how it works. What it says is that when we before God, come before God, and even our very own hearts condemn us, we can be certain because of what Christ has done that he hears us, that he loves us, and that we can draw close. He says this, he says, God is bigger than your heart. We want to listen to our heart. So often we find ourselves, one of the biggest barriers to prayer, the biggest barriers to loving others, is that we listen to our heart instead of listening to God. We put how we feel, or we put, hey, maybe you've said this before. Uh, So I apologize for having made fun of you. Uh, I just can't, I know God forgives me, I just can't forgive myself. I hate it so much. Uh, Because it's a stupid thing to forgive yourself. Like if you walked up here and punched me in the face and walked away, like, you know what, I forgive myself. You don't get to do that. I have to forgive you. You're the one that punched me. But we do that. We have to have, I forgive myself. I get the sentiment, though. I think the, the idea behind it, though, is true. The idea behind it is I live underneath the guilt and shame of this. I know that God forgives me, but you know what? I'd rather listen to my heart than that forgiveness. Or I don't know how to stop listening to my heart and listen to God instead. And your biggest reality is what your heart tells you, not who God is and what he's done. And it's a gift to go into his presence and be reminded how much bigger he is even than your heart. that he loves you and wants the world to know his love. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful God. He is bigger than even our hearts that condemn us. This is the kind of world I want to live in. This is the kind of, kind of change I want to be. I, I don't want to be the kind of people who's, person who snaps at old people at Costco. I don't want to be the type of person who uh, makes snide comments about middle school basketball coaches. I, I don't want to be that agent of change in the world. I don't want it to be us and them. This is a better way to live. And here's what you have to have to have this. Jesus, 
to be united to him by faith, to be found in him by faith. What that means, that's so transformative because what it means is that you are a child of God. When you are united to Christ by faith, you are a child of God and what can be said of him can now be said of you. Access to the Father to come into his presence just like Jesus can because you're found in him. Not through priests and robes and washings and all this dressing, but just because you are a child, you have access. Do not not underestimate the great value of that. To live a life assured, to having peace of mind, to being certain about what is important and what is valuable and how you're supposed to be in the world, that access that you have to God, it'll change you. It should change you. If we set aside the time to come before him, if you don't know how, here's my advice to you. Just start. Go to a psalm. Read it. Answer God out of that place. Use those words. Hear what he said to you and respond to him. Take the time to lay your life out in front of him. Use the great advantage, the great power that we have of going into God's presence and laying our life in front of him and letting him speak to us. Learn to love. Be transformed. Learn to be like Christ in the world. It is good for us. It is a great, great gift. What a treasure. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus that we can be this way in the world, that we can be transformed. I'm quite certain that I can't be this way in the world on my own. I'm quite certain that there's no way for me to summon this kind of feeling up for the world. But because of what Christ has done, because of who he is, we have this kind of access to a father that to a God that has pursued us, to a God who wants us to know him this way, to a God who wants to change our hearts, to get rid of the hard places filled with hate, to overcome the places that want to be detached and dismissive, that wants to bridge relationships, that wants to see hearts and lives transformed by Jesus Christ. Father, give us assurance as we come to your table that we can come into your presence because of who Christ is. Because of being united to him by faith, we can with confidence come into your presence and know you and hear you and know that you hear us. What a powerful way to live. What a powerful way to be. Transform us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.